there was a stabbing in my neighborhood this week. I was the victim. And the perpetrator, and the perpetrator. So I was opening a pallet of flooring boxes, and I was very excited. It was wrapped in cellophane, and I had a multi-tool, non-serrated, praise the Lord, multi-tool blade. And I'm just, in my enthusiasm, making these big, big motions. And my left hand got in the way of my right hand, and it went down. I was quite nervous, because it went in deep, and I thought, did I hit a tendon? Oh, Lord, please. Save me from my foolishness. Uh, and so it took some stitches, but uh, doesn't look like there are any tendon da- uh, damage, praise the Lord. Probably the most concerning thing when I was at the hospital was my blood pressure. Oh, no. 138 over 95, and, and there it is in black and white staring at me, and I, I instantly thought, oh, I've got to lose weight. I've got to exercise more. I'm going to manage my stress better. Maybe I need to talk to a doctor about some blood pressure medication. And here's the thing. It's, now, hopefully, I, I have checked it since, and it was better than that. Uh, that, I'm sure, was uh, elevated due to being in the ER, right, and uh, being traumatized. But the fact of the matter is this isn't new information to me. I struggle with blood pressure Uh, being too high. And so it's not new information, and it's not something I don't believe. I know I have a problem. It's just that as I go through life, so often that important fact gets buried, and it's not on the forefront of my my mind. I'm not, and I don't make my daily decisions in light of it, although I should. Every time I sit down to eat, I ought to be thinking, how is this going to affect my blood pressure? Uh, Every time I choose to watch Netflix rather than go running, I should think, how is this choice going to affect my blood pressure? But it doesn't. And I was reminded that so many important truths that we know and even believe get, they just sort of get buried in the day-to-day living of life, and they're not influencing our behavior and our values and our pursuits the way that they should. And that is what Peter is telling us today in our text. We are in a series on 2 Peter called Sure-Footed Faith. We're actually completing the series today. And so today we're looking at 2 Peter chapter 3. Turn there in your Bibles if you would. Uh, We're going to be covering this entire chapter. And here is how Peter starts off. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. In chapter 1, verse 12, he tells us, it's it's not that I'm going to tell you things in this letter that you don't know or that you don't believe. I'm simply reminding you of stuff you already know and believe. But it's important always that you're reminded. So in chapter 1, verse 12, he writes, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. In other words, you believe them. As a preacher, I know that for James and me, our goal is often not to teach you new truth. Now, hopefully we teach you things and, uh, and so often you're saying, 
oh, I, had, I didn't know that, or I never thought of it that way. And, and certainly we want, to, uh, we want to convince you of the truth of God's word. But probably more often than not, our job is to remind you of truths you already know and believe. We are, as Peter says, stirring up by way of reminder your sincere mind. So I have here a jar with water and some topsoil, and it has been, you know, for a little over a half hour, it has been settling. And that's what happens with biblical truth. Uh, we, we learn about it, and then over time it settles, and it's not as big of a factor in our thinking. Our minds are not being as influenced by the biblical truth as they could be, and so we need them to be stirred up, right? And all of a sudden, the biblical truth is permeating our minds and our hearts, and we are evaluating life in light of that glorious truth. So, paradigm shift for some of you. It's not enough to know and believe. Uh, that you need to be reminded. You need to be stirred up on a regular basis. Once you've grasped a bi biblical truth and you believe it, that's great. But you need that to be stirred up for the rest of your life or it won't have the appropriate uh, impact on your life. Like my blood pressure, uh, it, in fact, it will just sort of get buried and not influence your day-to-day -day, uh, life the way God wants it to. And so, hey, I'm talking to people who are in church. Coming to church is one, is one of the primary ways for you to be stirred up by way of reminder. Well done. Huh, two thumbs up. I can do that. <laughs> two thumbs up. This one's even really big. Uh, but there are other things you do. Read the Bible on a regular basis. You know, sometimes we say, ah, I already know all this stuff. I'm not learning anything new. Huh. But you're being reminded. Have a Bible study. Right? We've got Bible study fellowship uh, starting up. We have all of our journey groups in a couple, well, actually next week, we will be uh, handing out the fall journey group lineup. And you, you can listen to sermons online. You can listen to the Bible online. There are lots that we can do uh, to be stirring up our sincere mind, which the NIV says calls wholesome thinking. Uh, it's a mind that is, being, that is influenced by biblical truth. Now, Peter has in mind a very particular truth that he wants to remind us of today, and that is the truth that Jesus Christ is going to return a second time, and at that point, he will judge the living and the dead. But not everyone believes that. There are those who scoff at the idea that Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Verse 3, he writes, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So a scoffer is one who laughs at, derisively, the truths 
taught in the Bible. And in particular, this truth that Jesus is going to come back and judge the living and the dead, they, they laugh at it, they scoff at it, they mock it, and they're like, oh, please. If he's coming back, why is it taking him 2,000 years? Right? When are you going to give up this delusion that Jesus is coming back again? He died 2,000 years ago. He was just a human like any other. He's not coming back to life. Look, you know, the world just keeps going the way it's always gone. We live in a naturalistic worldview. If there is a God, he's the deistic God. He's the watchmaker God. He set things in motion, and things just run and the way they always have. And they're just going to keep going that way. This idea that God cares about humans and that uh, our behavior matters to him so much that he's going to bring everyone back to life, both those alive and those who have died, and, and they're going to have to give an account of themselves to God. Oh, that, come on, that's, that's ridiculous. And they mock it, and they scoff at it. And Peter says, in the last days, now, he was writing this about 30 years after Christ had died and gone back to be with the Father in heaven. And I'm sure there were some scoffers even then, but I think Peter here has been given foresight by the Holy Spirit to recognize our day. <laughs> we're certainly in the last days, certainly laster than Peter was, and uh, there are a whole lot of scoffers. Scoffers in, uh, definitely in your school, in your business place, neighborhood, even maybe amongst your family and friends. But, Peter says, they're forgetting something very important. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact. I like how he says fact, not this myth. This fact, this historical thing that happened in the past. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter is saying they're forgetting creation and the flood. Creation demonstrates that we matter to God. Enough so that he created a universe and people created in his image. Uh, that's because he wanted a relationship with us. We matter to God. That's what creation says. The flood says that what we do matters to God, right? What's the flood? God created humans, time marched on, and he saw that they were wicked, and, and it grieved the Lord, and he regretted having made people because of their wickedness, and so he sent the flood to destroy them. And everyone on the planet was destroyed except Noah and his immediate family. And so creation and the flood demonstrate that God absolutely intervenes in human affairs, that, that what we do absolutely matters to God, and he will act in time and space to hold us accountable. And so you have to bury your hand in the sand. You have to say, well, that never happened. Either there was no creation or there was no flood because those two great events, Peter says, clearly uh, foreshadow another judgment because there's been a whole lot more wickedness on the, on the planet 
done since the time of Noah. Verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So contrary to the scoffer who says, uh, the world keeps on keeping on, it just keeps going the way it's always been, and it will just keep doing that. Uh, the Bible teaches that, no, there is coming a day when this world and its systems will come to a, a cataclysmic end, and Jesus Christ will return, and on that, that will be the day of judgment, in which we will all stand before God and give an account for our lives. And the ungodly will be destroyed. Now, who are the ungodly? Not those who have done bad things, because that's all of us, right? There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible teaches. So, the destruction of the ungodly would mean the destruction of all humans who've ever lived. There's only been one man who is righteous, the man Jesus Christ. Ungodly, another way to say that is those who have not repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ in this lifetime. The non-Christian, the unbeliever, they will be destroyed. And that, that is not a happy thought for many, which is why they scoff at it rather than fear it and respond in faith. Well, what's taking Jesus so long? Why is it taking him 2,000 years? Why the delay? Verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. First off, Peter says, God does not relate to time the way you and I do. God is not subject to time the way you and I do. But even more importantly, I think he continues, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. Don't miss that. Jesus' second coming is a promise made by God. That's why we know it will happen. It's not, well, if certain factors line up a certain way, Christ will return. It's just a promise that cannot be broken. Now, some say that Jesus has not returned because he doesn't care, right? The reason Jesus is delaying his return is because what people do on earth just doesn't matter to God. He's apathetic. He, Peter says, no, that's not why he's delayed. He is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the reason Jesus is delaying his return is not because he doesn't care. He absolutely cares. It's because he loves us, and he doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He doesn't want anyone to be judged. He wants to give us maximum time possible to repent and get saved. And so here we see the priority of God. The priority of God is not judgment. It's rather salvation. See, if God's priority was to judge sin, he would come now. 
because there's been a whole lot of sin that needs to be judged. And he will judge sin because his justice demands it. All sin will be fully punished, whether it's on the back of Jesus Christ or on our own back, it will be punished. So God will judge sin, but his priority is salvation. What he really longs for is everyone to be saved. And so Jesus is delaying his return to give people time to repent and get saved. See, when you repent of your sins, what happens is your, the penalty for your sins gets transferred to Jesus Christ. And then he bears it, he bore it on the cross. So your sins will be judged. But they can be judged on the back of Jesus or they can fall upon you. But if they fall upon you, you there won't be a resurrection for you. It's game over. It will crush you for eternity. And it was only the Son of God who could get back up uh, from that penalty and live again. So God's desire for you is that you repent and be saved. And you don't know how long you have. In his patience, in his mercy, he's waited for over 2,000 years, but he could return tonight. He could return tomorrow. We don't know how much longer we have. So the day of salvation, it's now is the time to get saved. Not tomorrow, not after I... What, what are the scoffers doing? They're following their own sinful desires. Well, I'm committed to my sin, and I want a little bit more of that. Then I'll get saved. How do you know you have time? Look what this verse says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus tells us elsewhere, there is no one who knows the day or the hour, only God himself. You cannot time this. Well, I'm just going to live my independent, sinful life right up until the end. And then I'll get right with God. As if, you're, as if you're timing the market. You can't time the market. You can't time the return of Jesus Christ. It's going to come like a thief when you don't expect it, when you're unprepared. And if, if Christ returns and you're unprepared, you will suffer loss. What do thieves do? They come to steal. And many will suffer great loss when Jesus returns. God does not want that for you. He doesn't want that for your co-workers, your classmates, your loved ones, your friends. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Elsewhere the scriptures say that every careless word we utter will come to light on that day and we will give an account. Well, hopefully, hopefully we have... Uh, so far, hopefully, this is hard to do with one thumb. I'm not going to drop it here. Hopefully, we have been stirred up 
by way of a reminder of this truth. And so now we're evaluating our lives. We're like, whoa, in light of the, of the second coming of Christ, what could be at any moment, how should I live? That's what he says next. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, wait, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. What kind of people should we be? People whose lives are characterized by holiness and godliness. What is holiness? Holiness means to be separated unto the Lord. A vessel that was used in the temple was a holy thing because it had been designated for the purpose of temple use. Christians, we are to view ourselves as set apart for God. This is why the apostles often refer to themselves as bondservants of Jesus Christ. A bondservant is one who willingly became a slave out of love for the master. Uh, and then they would pierce the ear and put a ring in it as an indication that you were a bondservant. As Christians, we are to view ourselves as God's servants. And so has there been a point in your life where you have said to God, and you use words, and you say, God, I belong to you. I'm not my own. My life is yours to command. Do with me as you wish for your purposes, for your glory, even if that involves suffering. That's, that is the ought to this glorious truth that Christ will return. And godliness. Godliness is reflecting the character of God. If somebody bites into you, they should taste the character of God, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so we set ourselves on a path to become in, in character like our God. That's the ought. That's the normal Christian life. That's the, uh, that is the rational way to live in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return a second time. You know, heaven is worth the weight and the work. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent. The NIV says, make every effort. We encounter that in chapter 1. Make every effort to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So this heaven is worth the wait and the work. Let me give you a little illustration. So this summer, I have been remodeling our living room. So I have a picture here of, and this is, I'm already part way through the remodel. And the guy who built this room was lazy, and I understand that now. He, rather than uh, mud and tape the seams, he covered them with one-by-fours, and it was atrocious. And there were light boxes, and so I pulled down the one-by-fours, and I'm like, oh, no, I have to mud and tape this thing? Uh, and he textured it and spray-painted it. It was a, ah, oh, 
60 gallons of mud are now on the walls and ceilings of that room. 60 gallons, which means I probably sanded off a lot more than I needed to. I'm not a professional. So that's the current state of the room. Uh, by the way, the fireplace, the nastiest home repair job I've ever done was using aircraft solvent to strip the paint off that thing. And I probably took some years of my life. It was terrible. But the lights are they're matching that steel look. It's pretty cool. Yesterday, my dad and I, mostly my dad, I, I just kept going. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help you, Dad. Seven bags of self-leveling underlayment. And anyways, it has robbed, uh, robbed my family of two weeks of summer. I mean, every spare moment is remodeling this living room. Is it worth the wait and the work? Hopefully. Heaven certainly is. Hopefully this is. But the, the reason we have been willing to do this is because I, I have. We have grand visions of a winter time in a beautiful living room with lights, so many lights, it's as if the sun is beaming down on us. I hope to get a tan from this. Uh, we have so many lights that there are six light switches for that one room. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Tuesday, the lights come on, according to uh, Kyle Wilson. So, listen, this is a little illustration of heaven. Yes, there's self-denial now. Yes, there is saying no to temptation now. Why? Because you're living for a better day. You know that, uh, that this world isn't all there is. Your best life is in front of you. It's worth the wait. It's worth the work. C.S. Lewis, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the last book, the last battle, towards the end of the book, they have finally arrived in Aslan's land. They're on the outskirts. Eventually, they get up to Aslan's castle, but right now, they're on the edge of Aslan's land, and there are beautiful fruit in the trees. And we read this. Everyone raised his hand to pick the fruit he best liked the look of. And then everyone paused for a second. This fruit was so beautiful that each felt, it can't be meant for me. Surely we're not allowed to pluck it. It's all right, said Peter. I know what we're all thinking, but I'm sure, quite sure, we needn't. I have a feeling we've got to the country where everything is allowed. Here goes then, said Eustace, and they all began to eat. What was the fruit like? Unfortunately, no one can describe a taste. All I can say is that compared with those fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull, and the juiciest orange was dry, and the most melting pear was hard and woody, and the sweetest wild strawberry was sour, and there were no seeds or stones and no wasps. If you had once eaten that fruit, all of the nicest things in this world would taste like medicines after it. But I can't describe it. You can't find out what it is like unless you can get to that country and taste for yourself. Obviously, Lewis has in mind the Garden of Eden, where there was the fruit that Eve desired, but taking it uh, introduced sin into the world and he's looking forward to that day when in the new heaven and the new earth, 
righteousness dwells, and we won't even have to exercise self-control because our desires will be transformed. And so what is available to us will match our desires. Won't that be awesome? How does he put it? I have a feeling we've got to a country where everything is allowed. Heaven is going to be categorically, indescribably better than this world. It is worth the wait. It's worth the work. Remember that Jesus is returning. See how quickly it settles? We just need to constantly be stirring up our minds with biblical truth so that we have sincere minds or wholesome thinking so that we can go through this world appropriately, making correct decisions about what we should pursue and not pursue, what we should value and not value, what we should love and not love, what should we should do and not do. And so right now, if you wouldn't mind bowing your head and closing your eyes, and we have, our minds have been stirred up by a reminder that Christ will return. And so let's take a time, take stock of our lives right now and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what needs to change. Maybe he wants to just affirm and encourage you because you are making choices in light of this truth. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, the fact is we just don't know when Jesus will return. You don't know how much time you have. God does not want you to perish. He doesn't want the judgment, the righteous judgment for your sins to fall upon you. Jesus has already paid the penalty. He's capable of shouldering that. But you have to repent. There has to come a moment of time in your life where you turn to God and say, I repent. I am a sinner. Forgive me. I turn from that independent, sinful life. I turn towards you by placing my faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. My life is now yours. Will you do that? That's your next step. And if that's you, there's nothing I'd rather do than uh, to witness you becoming a child of God. So please come see me after the service. And let me pray with you. Talk to you about next steps in following Jesus. Heavenly Father, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because for the follower of Jesus Christ, your return begins our best life.